0: All right, well,
1: I hope, I hope you've, you've eaten well and you've had a good coffee, because this is about the worst time of day to give a talk. Um, I hope you can bear with me, and we are talking about this prayer that, that Father Paul suggested for this weekend, which is, Lord, give me a wise and listening heart, and we talked in the last talk, I don't know if you noticed, about listening. And really the topic was about truth, the idea of truth. And I think, um, I mean, I'm not trying to ram some, somebody, you know, this, what, I, what I personally believe down somebody's throat. I was just trying to, I was trying to present, I think, a Christian perspective on things, how we see kind of the world view, you know, and, and I think as a Christian, now you know, I could argue, okay, maybe an atheist would say something similar, but I think one of the basic starting points of a Christian is, is at least in, in a tent, maybe he doesn't live that himself, no? He hopefully, um, and maybe a lot of us are not very authentic in living that as Christians. But the basic idea, first of all, is is that it's not so much what Pope Pope Francis calls in his encyclical letter on the ecology, a technocratic model of the world. Again, a complicated world uh, word, but he's basically saying um, we live in a world where I see reality outside of me, it's there, and it's there for me to manipulate. It's there for me to use as I want. It's there as my means to an end that I have. And a mystic a, a, has a much more contemplative attitude. It's not so much, how can I use this for my goal? and for my. And, and I'm not saying that's all bad, right? Because we wouldn't have a lot of this, these technical d- devices if we wouldn't know how to use things as means to ends. But there is another dimension to reality. And the mystic would say, well, it's not so much about uh, trying to impose what I think on this reality, but trying to understand what is this reality telling me. And, and that's what faith is all about. You know, it's, it's trying to listen um, to the possibility, first of all, to the possibility, and then to somebody who really we think really speaks know, as Christians, who has really spoken his word in Jesus Christ, and he's really done something. Now, our our faith as Christian, I would say, as a Christian, my faith is not so much in some kind of dogmatic formulas or some kind of moral norms. Um, be good. That's um, you have atheists that are good people. That's not the point. Um, it's it's the belief in a a happening of history which we believe really happened that Jesus really died and rose from the dead, and and that he and he's calling us to do something, he's calling the human person out of himself to be something which he could never be just without, with his own strength. And that doesn't mean that, that again, um, that there's not the merit to this idea of, okay, well, let's use things as means to ends, okay, it's fine. But all he's saying is there's something deeper, there's something more to life than just that. And so the last talk, we, we, we emphasized this idea of truth, and now I'd like to talk about freedom. So, Lord, give me a wise and listening heart. Well, wisdom is not just like a, a knowledge thing. It's a, it's a love thing as well. And love always has to do with freedom. So wisdom has a lot to do with freedom. And that's what I'd like to um, talk a little bit with you about or try to talk a little bit with you about in, in, this, in this conversation. And by the way, I think this also, I don't know how it is for you, but it's all, always a challenge, right, that, that one is really authentic when one speaks because... Um, I was speaking to, s- to someone or someone I appreciate, he was saying, you know, I realized about 20 years ago that about 79% of what I was saying was just repeating what I was hearing from other people, from school, from my cultural context. I, I couldn't really say it's, this is me talking. This is like, this is what really I'm convinced about, you know? And, and I think, again, speaking as a Christian, I think that's a huge challenge because how offensive it comes across when I think that the person on the other side realizes it's just a bunch of blah, 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 blah. No, it's, it, you're not really standing beside, behind what you're saying. So I think, yeah, it's a challenge to, to try to get um, our ideas straight and what we really believe in. And this is what I'd like to, I mean, maybe this wasn't too, too practical. I hope... Things will become more practical also in this talk. But, um, I, again, I think there's nothing more concrete than an idea. We need to get our ideas straight. What do we really believe in? What, how do we really see the world? And then that has practical consequences. But um, I'd like to speak about the principles first and then talk a little bit about the consequences. So, um, freedom. And there's this interesting quote from the, from the Song of Songs um, Holy de Liebe that's why 8LD sorry I didn't change it from the German you brought me into the wine cellar you have ordered love within me this is one possible translation of this text there are other translations but and this is an idea that St. Augustine took from the from the Song of Songs that God one, one of the principal things he also does is order put order in our love puts order in our love and the wise person Saint Aristotle said, um, sapientis est ordinare. It belongs to the wise person to order things, to put order into things. And above all, he does so through looking at things through the, what he calls the highest causes or the highest principles. So it's looking at the big picture and seeing the big picture, I try to put order in this concrete thing right now. But it's trying to keep my horizons really wide open. And we were talking about, in the last talk, how a lot of times that's difficult because we're, we're, we're reducing our, our, our view of things through the prism of my egotism, of my pride, of my sensuality, of my vanity, of expectations from others, a lot of other things. So I think one of the big challenges is to keep like our, our perspective really wide open. So it's kind of hard also to separate these two talks because love and truth... And freedom and truth have a lot to do with each other. But, well, let's let's, let's, try, to, let's try to move on. Um, what we were trying to say in the last talk, I can't cr- also, I can't order correctly, create a proper hierarchy of values in my life and put things in their place in my life and help to do it in the world if I have a blurry vision of things. Or better said, because we'll never be, be able to do that perf- perfectly, right? So we're always... It's always a, an imperfect striving towards that, but it, it, that effort should be there if we're going to have um, if we're going to be take wise decisions. If we're going to take wise decisions, so first of all, I want to talk about um, a boy in his shed. Okay, now this is a story with a foundation and truth, but not totally truthful. Um, so imagine this is Canadian boy. He's growing up on a ranch, and. And every day he had to come home from school, and let's say this is the bus station where he, the bus dropped him off. And this is, this is the shed, or the granary, or like where the corral was, where the cows were, different things. And, and here, so the bottle is, the, is his home, the glass is the shed, and over here this thing is, let's say, the, the drop off. No? Now, he had to walk from there to get to his home every day. And that took about five minutes, in theory in practice it always took about two hours, or three. Because there was always something to do here, always. You know? Either the, the, the sheep had broken out and they were chasing mum around the, the laundry thing, or uh, the cows were in the strawberry patch, or uh, there was always something to do. You know? And so this took an awful long time, and he wanted to go play. So he said, well, what can I do about This is just not good, this is not good. No, I want to go home and play. So he had this bright idea, and instead of walking past this place like this, you know, like instead of just you know, going this past this, and seeing, oh, oh, I got to work again, he took a long way around, you know, like a long, big circle around the granary and around the corrals. Um, and that took a bit longer, maybe about 10 minutes. But in practice, it was a lot faster, <coughs> a lot faster. And it was great, because then when parents asked, didn't you see that we needed help? No didn't see anything. And you didn't even have to lie. It was truthful. You didn't see anything. Okay. And I'm telling you this story because I think something similar can happen in our lives sometimes. <coughs> that somebody can tell me, hey, you've got a problem. It's as big as a barn. But I don't see it. Why? Because I don't want to see it. That simple. Okay. In other words, our wills are capable of, of pushing our intellect not to look at certain things. And, and again, that's a challenge for, for taking wise decisions. You know? um, and, and to keep that big picture open and to be open to see reality as it is, because we can fool ourselves a little bit. You know? And maybe somebody from outside isn't fooled that easily as I am myself. But um, yeah, I think that's, anyway, I think that's a challenge. I don't know how it is for you, but it is, it definitely is for me. Um, I, I need interior freedom so as, as to see clearly um this is one of the ideas why ignatius loyola in his exercises would talk about this idea of it sounds horrible in english because it sounds negative um to have a holy indifference before a decision and 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 indifferent not in the sense of oh i couldn't care less but in the sense of if it's this way or that way lord i'm ready to give you a blank check i'm i i'm open to anything but really interiorly on my heart, I'm open to anything. And he talks about when you're discerning and you're trying to make a decision, what's a good decision is, am I really in the depth of my heart open to whatever it might be? No? Because if you're not, you're, the, the, the probability of you having on glasses with, which are tinged with different colors or, or warped um, to, make, to force reality to fit into the framework that you would like it to be. I think that's the challenge um, to have to come to this to this um, indifference now again, if you're a Christian type of person, um, I think one of the ways I think that we can do that for starting off is is how could it be different how how could the priest say something different right is but I really mean that I think it's prayer it's is asking him to help me to have that kind of an attitude because it's sometimes tough you no know? it's tough not to fool ourselves it's it's tough not to See the reality sometimes with a little bit of a warped vision, and just to, just that simple action already of, of asking him, but not just one day, but maybe for bigger decisions to take some time, um, and 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 uh, yeah, and 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 in, in prayer maybe a few minutes a day for a week or so. I was just having somebody now um, we just talked about it last week, um, <clears throat> it's a person that that came from another country wants to work in the area of government and polit- international politics <laughs> in Vienna is, is taking a course and it's not what it turned out for her to be. Like it's not, doesn't, you know, it doesn't challenge her as much as she would like. And now, well, what do I do? Do I make that decision now to stay two years of my life? Do I take that in Vienna or do I do that? Or do I, and, and then there's a lot of different factors do not go into that in her life, which, which could kind of, taint her vision of, of things and, and, for, and make her do something she, which at the end she's going to regret. And so it's, it's good in a moment like that to take some time and am I, my am I really open. And I think, again, um, okay, you can say you can do this without God, fine. But I think to have God in the picture is good because, first of all, he does help. I think he really does. I think he's really there and he does help out. And second of all, it helps us to have a criterion from the outside. You know, Lord, what would you like me to do? Because I trust that it's really going to be the best thing for me, and and help me to, to check that you know what that might be. So, um, we were saying in the last talk also that kind of this tunnel vision I can have that through greed, through disordinate affections, and passions, and I only see the, see the thing that I want the apple. No, I forget there's millions of other apple trees, but I want this apple. It's kind of like our cows on our ranch. You know they have hundreds, thousands of hectares of land. you know, And where do you find the cows very frequently? All of you who have ranchers' uh, background, you know this. you know. They're standing at the fence. And, you know, she's, Mrs. Cow, she's down on her, like, like this. Her back end is up, way up in the sky. And she's reaching through the fence because right there, there's some grass. And I've got to get that grass that's right there. She's rubbing through the fence. There's thousands of hectares of grass over there. No, but... I want to have that one over there, you know, and that, that tunnel vision, sometimes we can have that as well in our lives, you know, that we kind of, we lose focus, because I've seen that and I just, boom. Now I forget the big picture, and I only see the thing I want, or I only see the thing that I'm afraid of, and that can lead to, make us crazy or phobic, um, almost insane in a certain way you know it's it's that something somebody, somebody who ends up in a psychological hospital like extreme case of this sometimes i mean there's a lot of different reasons i know but sometimes it also has to do with this kind of just being so focused on the thing that i'm afraid of that i i it's like a spiral that goes down and down and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and, bigger, and i only see that you no know, and i can't get rid of it anymore i'm afraid of of everything um now there's an interesting quote in the bible i don't know did i bring it here um, the, yeah, that one. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and it seems like such a, a strange quote because it seems to be contradicted by another quote in the New Testament. This is Old Testament, New Testament, where it says, um, <clears throat> "Where there is fear, there is no love, and love drives out fear." And and so I, I think what the point is is it's two different types of of fear that we're we're talking about, um, and and, I, and I'll try to try to explain what I mean. I think we need to get this fear thing right because i know and probably you might have experienced in your own life or you've heard about it in the past supposedly i, I mean I, you know in german you talk about Drohbotschaft. You no know, we christians we try to bring fear to people you know like like the the priest who's is that standing at the front of the church and he screams everybody in this parish is gonna die you know and everybody's like oh, all afraid and everything except one guy in the back he's cracking up laughing and and, and so the priest is kind of frazzled, and he says it a bit louder, everybody's gonna die in this parish, you know? And then he, he laughs louder, and everybody else is more afraid. And it gets, it like, this goes back and forth a few times. And at the end, he says, sir, didn't you understand what I'm saying? And he says, yeah, but I'm not from this parish. So, um, But supposedly, you know, we're, we, we try to, like, there's this robot shot and we, we brought fear into people. Um, <coughs> Yeah, I, I don't know if anybody does that anymore, at least in the Western world. I, I've never heard a homily in my life on hell, for example, um, or anything like that. But anyway, um, what I wanted to say is, I, I think, that, what is he trying to say here? Um, I think there is a type of fear that is good. There is a type of fear that is really bad if it paralyzes us. But there's a type of fear, which the kind of fear when you have when you you're, you're on top of floor number 55 and on the edge or you're walking on the ridge in in the mountain like we were in the summer and it's it's kind of foggy <laughs> it was kind of foggy it rained and you know it's a few hundred meters on your right and a few hundred meters on your left and you, and you're walking down a really it doesn't mean that you're, you're you're paralyzed it could paralyze you then it gets bad no but it's you, you respect that reality you know that's that's kind of the point no? and i think um, God doesn't want us to be afraid of us, uh, of him in the sense of, <clears throat> I'm scared and I'm paralyzed and so on, but but to realize, you know, just because I'm top, I'm, I shouldn't pretend that I'm not on top of that mountain <coughs> ridge, or that you know, I'm not on top of floor number 55, when I am, you know, and it's kind of the same, I mean, basically one of the, yeah, if I would have a, I don't have a, um, what do you call it, a, a board, no, 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 leave it, it's, it's okay, it's I,
0: I, I mean,
1: let's say, imagine you have a like a you know big picture of the sun, and then a little dot in comparison. That's me in compared to God. I mean, I'm not like, even a, a grain of sand on the ocean shore is nothing compared to God. Like it's, it's. I think we reduce God in our modern day a little bit to a a nice buddy type of friend, and that's and He is that. That's a beautiful thing. He says, I call you friends, right? But He's He's. Yeah, he's a buddy and he's a friend, but he's also God, right? I mean, he's he's also he's the Almighty God who's created everything. He's he's um, he's a lamb, but he's also a lion. Uh, anyway, it's okay. Wolf. okay well, okay. Well, thank you. Now I gotta use it. That's good. <laughs> um, and a few days, well, a few weeks ago, I was I was standing underneath. I was in the shower. I noticed for you. Sometimes I have the best ideas in the shower, and and I, I couldn't figure it out. You know, fear the Lord, but why does it say then love drives out fear, and where there's fear, there is no love? And then and then I and I thought, well, maybe fear is is somehow a little bit like like shame. Like in the theology of the body, which is the church's teaching on sexuality and love and, and, and um, relationships, um, the Pope John Paul speaks about this idea of shame, which is kind of this reaction that we have when something comes to the fore without like, my permission. Um, what I find is kind of bad when I'm ashamed is not necessarily a thing. I can be ashamed <laughs> of something good, but the fact that this thing is now public, which I would la- rather have kept private for me. And, and it's kind of like a, uh, a defense mechanism that comes up when I realize that my privacy or my, my dignity or my intimacy is not respected, or at the end of the day, my freedom is not respected, you know, because this thing, without my permission, with, in other words, without my free consent, has become public. And, and in relationships, you see how that comes up. I even see it within couples sometimes, you know, when you... When you realize that one of the per- persons feels used, for example, you know, the other person, what well, that person starts closing himself you know, or starts putting up masks or, or walls or like, try to protect oneself. No, well, that's what shame does. It tries to protect the demands of love. But in the degree that you love the other person, shame can draw back. It can, it can be reduced. And it's ultimately conquered by love. But not, th- not in the sense that it's destroyed, no, not in the sense that it's, it's gone, because the moment that, you, that you're not loving, but you're using, the shame is there again. No, that, in other words, um, shame is not destroyed, but it can, it can recede in the degree that its demands are met by love. You understand about what I'm trying to say? No? Um, if I love someone, then it's kind of like my story This before mass with a kid um, who's taking the 25 cookies and he doesn't have to be ashamed, really. I mean, it's our natural reaction, but with God, for example, I mean, what we're trying to do is, for example, I notice that when when people go to confession, when when they come to confession, it's a lot of times such a beautiful experience for them. It can be traumatic if the priest says stupid things and things, no? You did what? No, that comes (laughs) (laughs) up. But it can be very beautiful when you started having your, you starting doubting your self-worth and then all of a sudden, you realize that you can, you've, you've taken a 25 cookies or whatever you've done, and you can look God straight in the eyes, and you don't have to look away. Because you know he's going to accept you as you are. And every, everything included. You know, it's not like, I've got to hide this, because if he sees this, he's not going to accept me. He's not going to love me. Um, and then the same thing that's beautiful in a relationship, right? When you can show yourself for what you are, and you don't have to pretend to be someone else. And that other person, you notice, I'm accepted in my... And I don't have to change so that other person loves me. I'm, first of all, the first thing is, I'm unconditionally accepted by the other person. And that makes shame draw back or, or um, recede. But if I am noticed, I'm not being respected, if I'm being treated as an object or in some way, or maybe not in a radical way, but in some way, well, at that moment, that person starts closing, clothing himself again um, and, and protecting himself through shame. And I think maybe f- with fear, it's something similar, because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Because it's not, the, yes, love drives out fear, but not because you don't realize who God is. Not because he's a nice little teddy bear, like he's a nice, nice Jesus, you know, like a little buddy type friend. Y- you still realize he's the almighty God. but But because there's a love relationship, you don't have to be... Like afraid of this mighty God? No, t- totally the contrary. You're overwhelmed by um, how, yeah, how loving He is with you, even though you know that He knows what a person you are and you and, uh, know the sins that you have, the failings that you have, etc. Okay, oh, okay. Maybe we should close it before all, all these question marks in your faces. Um, we we'll talk about it later. I'll try making because I'm digging my grave quickly here. I'm not, I'm realizing. Um, so. In, nevertheless, I wanted to stress this point because I think talking about wise decisions, <clears throat> it's good to see reality for what it is, you no, know, and not to be. For example, my my stupid example from before this summer when we were making this mountain crossing in Canada on a route that nobody's ever done before, um, and we're on this on this um, this crest. Um, and there's it's 300 meters and it's off and we don't know how it's going on. Um, it, you're gonna be able to make this right decisions if, not if you pretend, oh, it's not gonna be that difficult, there's no problem, just go and start, no? There's very little chance you'll actually make the right decisions in that moment. No? So to, to be able to, but not because we're afraid, but because we respect what could happen if we do something stupid. No? Anyway, I don't know if that's somehow clear. Okay, we're going to take a next step. Um, there's an idea from St. Thomas Aquinas. Okay, OK, we're talking about, we're trying to talk about freedom. And we're trying, trying to talk about love. And in the last talk, we talked about truth. <clears throat> and we're saying that wisdom has a lot to do with this. Uh, it's not just wisdom. It sounds intellectual. No, it's something wise. It sounds like something you do with your head. But I'm trying to propose to you that it's not just that. It has to do with love as well. And this quote from Aquinas I like a lot in that vein, because he says, um, "You can't know you can't love what you don't know. For example, you can't love Canadian pancakes with lots of maple syrup and lots of whipped cream on top." Um, Together with bacon on the side a bit of steak and eggs and and um, if you've never bitten into the thing, right just like for example, for me it 's hard to explain to a Canadian what a salzburger Knockle is it you can try to explain it with your words, but as you haven't experienced it it 's difficult right what I'm saying is one thing is intellectual knowledge and the other thing is the experience there are two types there are two different types of knowledge and 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 wisdom has to do with a second type of knowledge. Um, and also in getting to know another person, this is the idea from Thomas. You know, he says, you can't love what you don't know, you know. But if you want to really get to know somebody else deeper, you've got to love that person. Because if not, you're not going to see that person in, in its, that person's entirety. You know? You're going to probably use one part of that person that you want for yourself. Or In Germany, there's a nice word, man würde den anderen verkennen. You know? One one doesn't cannons on a fat Also, you, you won't see that person for what he truly is if you don't love him. Um, you won't see his full potential. You won't inspire that person to be the best version of themselves. You won't even see what that person is capable of. So it needs a glance of, of love to be able to bring the best out of another person. You know? and that's so necessary also for our relationships um, between each other. be that friends or be that between husband and wife or boyfriend and girlfriend or. Um, for, for in any relationship, really, you know, that, that cap- capacity of, yeah, that, that if you really want to know in a deeper way, you've got to love. Um, so that, that's basi- the basic idea here. And, and that's why we're talking about in the last talk that one of the biggest obstacles to knowing the truth of things is this, this complicated word in English, concupiscence, no, Gier or begierde in German. Um, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. It's the fog that doesn't allow me to see things clearly. Um, and and you can't see that bigger picture if you are driven and enslaved by expectations, addicted to the affirmations of others, etc. Okay. That all being said, let's talk about Big Macs. Um, now, this is... This is my attempt to you to try to explain how do we as Christians see freedom? like, And what do we mean? And we would say, well, sorry. There's two types of freedom in a Christian worldview. The one is a freedom from, and the other is a freedom for. So first of all, you have the freedom from. When I make a decision, I'm not being pressured in any way. that's freedom from. I, I'm I'm free from, yeah, pressure from outside. And for example, I think I told you yesterday about this lady that I suggested don't marry this guy because you don't know who you're gonna marry. You're gonna marry him or his mom because he hasn't cut the umbilical cord yet. You know, the um, I I didn't do that very often in my life, thank God. But it it was horrible, no, because you realize how he had not really cut that umbilical cord with his mom. It was, it was really bad news, you know, and for her it would have been um, a really bad situation. And, and she, she was putting pressure on him constantly. You know? um, and and, and he, he didn't have that interior freedom. You can only give yourself to someone if you possess yourself or in the degree that you possess yourself. Again, we're not perfect. We'll never get that done down perfectly. But, but freedom presupposes self-possession. That, I, that I, I have myself in my hands, so to speak. Dass ich mich selbst besitze, dass ich mich selbst in der Hand habe, im Griff habe. And in that degree, I can give myself to someone else. Um, so freedom from is very, very important, not to be under pressure, and this is a big thing. Now, I would propose to you that in our modern world, freedom is seen above all in this light, freedom from. And that's good, it's good to be free from pressure from outside. I can. Basically, do what I, what I see fit. And really, we see that it, um, each attempt from someone else to try to say, I don't know, for example, you've got to love this person, or you've got to go to church on Sunday, or you've got to whatever, you know, do whatever. You have to, well, that, that is, in German, you say eine Grenzüberschreitung, no? it, it's, it's, it's going a step too far. It's, it's something which, in a certain sense, goes against my human dignity. Because the only person that is that has the right to tell us, tell me what to do is me, because we're not instruments to an end. I try to explain it in a different way. You know we constantly use things as instruments, means to an end. I use a glass drink, I use this thing to flip the page, I use this thing to record, I use this thing to make telephone calls. I use this to read. you know we're constantly using clothing to close myself. we're using things as means to an end now. That's fine, because these are inanimate objects. But another person is not an object. Is not a means to an end. It it never could be, she can never be a means to my end. And the attempt to do that is always eine Grenzüberschreitung, No, it's always something that is not respecting the dignity of the other person. Um, Because the one who's giving herself or himself his own finality, his own end to, 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 towards which that person is striving is is me. You no, know, I'm I'm the one that's directing my life. Um, and that's a big that's a big deal. That's something very beautiful. You no, know, that makes us capable of loving. Um, and that is what at the end of the day, what, which we are striving for, because that's who we are. We're images again, we're images of God, God is love, you know. That's how we're going to find fulfillment and happiness if we love. But in order to do that, we need to be free. Okay. Now, there is another form of freedom, though, and that is the freedom for. Now, and this is my example of the Whopper, oh, sorry, of the, it's not a Whopper, it's a Big Mac. Um, <coughs> but, you know, if I'm, if I'm making the decision, Big Mac tonight or Whopper? Big Mac or Whopper? Whopper or Big Mac? Big Mac, Whopper? I don't have to make a decision. I'm not forced to. And that's freedom from. And that's great. As wenn jemand jetzt schon if somebody wants to go to confession or talk or whatever, no, you want to suggest that or you, you want yeah, to say? Maybe then.
2: if someone wants to go already, you can start already. Or after the I'll t- get the list. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah.
1: So that's wonderful. No to have this freedom from But what does the freedom from help me if I don't decide? You know, if I'm constantly going back and forth between Big Mac and Whopper, Whopper and Big Mac, Big Mac and Whopper, Whopper and Big Mac, well, I'm going to go home hungry and I will be a slave of my indecision. So freedom, yes, I need the freedom from, but freedom realizes itself, is fulfilled in the decision, in the freedom for, in the limitation in a certain sense of my freedom, through my freedom. And I'm going to say, I'm going to marry this woman or this man, for example. And, and I've said, when I said yes to her or yes to him, I've said no to very many other options. 500 million other options. No? And while I'm eating my Big Mac, I'm hopefully not totally thinking, oh, I wish I would have eaten the Whopper. You know? Or gone to Dairy Queen or to Pizza Hut or to the Wienerwald or whatever, to the Greek restaurant or... No, because I'm happy because I'm eating my Big Mac or eating my Whopper. But I made my decision. And when I marry somebody, hopefully, (laughs) I'm not thinking, oh, darn, I don't have this or that or the other thing. Every decision, every free decision for something is a decision against very many other things. And we're limiting our freedom. And the older we get, the more we limit ourselves in a certain sense. (coughs) Because I've got this job, I've got this family, I've got these kids, I'm I'm living in this place now and getting harder for me to move maybe with time, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. No, we're, we're limiting ourselves, but that doesn't mean we're becoming less free. On the contrary. I, I don't know. I'm sure you've all made the experience how, how liberating it is to make a decision, um, how liberating it is to know, okay, should I study biology or chemistry or business? Um, and, 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 okay, it's going to be biology. All right, and that's very liberating because I made a decision, and I'm not back and forth for years and trying to figure out what I'm going to do. No. So there's 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 a decision to, for something which realizes freedom, which which brings freedom to completion is is the decision part, which at the end of the day limits our freedom. And and I would propose that, that is that idea of freedom is is very countercultural because we live in a world where you keep all your options open, no as much you keep everything open, yeah. On Friday night at eight o- six o'clock, you still don't know which party you're going to go to because, you know, something better could still come up. You know, um, I'm not don't want to create. I'm I'm not making fun, but I'm just saying a lot of times we don't. You know, um, it it's this lack of decision leads to immaturity, um, and and a lack of realization, a lack of meaning at the end of the day, and. Okay? So to understand freedom in that, in that way, I think, is, is, is very important. Now, the point, though, is it's not just any decision that's going to make me, that's liberating. I was giving you the example yesterday. If I jump off of St. Stephen's Cathedral, it's also a free decision for something. But I will just have destroyed my freedom through a free act of freedom. You know? I made the decision to jump off St. Stephen's thinking maybe I'm a bird, and I realize I'm not. Um, and I will have killed myself um, and I've destroyed my freedom through an act of freedom. So just because we're making a decision for something doesn't mean that that is something which really frees me up, which liberates me. And this is why, this is why um, the question is what kind of thing is going to really set me free? What really frees us? what liberates us truly, what is really in fact good for me. Now, again, you don't have to accept this, I'm just saying this is kind of our Christian understanding of things, saying the higher the good that I choose, the greater is my liberty and my freedom. And that is why the highest good which we can choose, which is God, is the ultimate freedom it's the ultimate freedom. And I'll come back to that in a second. Now, I'd like to, sh- to, 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 oh, I, okay. Well, this was something else before. Um, trying to explain what, okay, it's, the wisdom has something to do with putting order in things, but and that gives us peace. Why? Because peace is tranquility of order. This is a, an idea of St. Augustine, which is very good. We'll come back to that later. Um, that it, put, trying to put order in my life in different areas is gonna give us peace of heart. But anyway. Um, this is, this, the painting in the back is a picture of Adam and Eve underneath the apple tree. And I was talking to you yesterday that the apple tree is, a, is a, or this morning, that is kind of a, um, a mythical image which tries to express this truth that the human being is free. Because man was told you can't eat of this apple tree. Well, that seems negative, but if you think about it, Commandments, you can't command the tree or the rock or the polar bear. Um, in the same way that you can command a human person, there's like to say it's it's bad to eat from this tree. Um, the idea of of commanding in that sense with moral connotations is something that only makes sense if you're a free agent, if you're capable of using your freedom, and and this is why we would say that sin is always a an der Freiheit. No, it's always a misuse of our freedom for ends which are not concomitant with love, which do not correspond to love, which correspond to egotism at the end of the day. Um, and, and, and again, um, what this brings with it, this idea of the tree is, is that there is, and maybe this is an idea kind of hard to wrap your head around, but um, that there's a proportionality between freedom, love, and responsibility. In other words, the very fact, the very moment that I'm free, brings with it a responsibility. For example, <coughs> sorry for this example, kind of, yeah. Our bulls on our ranch, the bullen of our ranch, and we didn't put them into prison or bring them to the judge when they broke out of their fences at the wrong time of the year and made our cows pregnant so that we would have Calves, little cows, by minus 50 degree temperatures. We were very angry at the bulls, you know, we were frustrated with them, but we didn't throw them into prison and we didn't bring them before the judge. Why? Because they're just following their instincts, right? Now, with a human person doing something similar, well, you would bring him before the trial. Why? Because he's free. And because he's free, he's responsible. Now, we said before, yes, but there's no love without freedom. And that means, at the end of the day, that there's no love without responsibility. It's one of the, the, the first books of John Paul II. I love the book. It's a bit philosophical, but it's, if you can get your head around it, it's, it's, um, it's quite an interesting book. And it's called Love and Responsibility. And it's precisely this idea that, that, um, that if I really love someone, the more I love someone, the more I want to be responsible for that person, the more responsibility I take on. And the egotist shuns responsibility, you know, tries to get rid of responsibility. And and so there's this correspondence between freedom, love, and responsibility. And the more I'm free, the more more capable of love I am. And the more I love, the more more capable of freedom I am. And the more responsibility I want to take on. Okay, Um, now there's this idea from benedict which i was just saying okay we said that there's a freedom from the idea of the whopper and the big mac which is good but that that is a dead end if it doesn't lead to decision because it's going to leave me hungry and how liberating decisions are but not any decision but the decision for what's truly good for me and we said that the 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 better the thing is or the greater the good the greater the freedom and this is why we would say the ultimate freedom is in God. And this is why somebody like Pope Benedict would say, while falling down before God is the ultimate declaration of freedom. Why? Because I'm not going to fall down and adore anything else. No ideology, no political system, no expectation of other people, not my egotism. No, I'm, I'm really free because God is the first place in my life. Now, you can, again, we can argue about this. Is can atheists have this? <coughs> yeah, maybe. But I think it's pretty cool to, to think of it in this way. or. To, if God is really first in my life, it's not, he's against my freedom, but he's actually, huma- he's a condition of possibility for my freedom. It's totally the contrary. You know? um, now, gosh, it's three o'clock in the afternoon and this is not a good time to talk about this philosophical thing. I, I'm gonna try and land it at the end, but if you can, can you bear with me another five minutes kind of philosophical um, parentheses of history. Um, there's an idea from Sartre, who says, which says basically the following. I mentioned it, I think, this morning. Was if I am free, God cannot exist. But I'm free, so therefore, God doesn't doesn't exist. That's his pithy syllogism that he brings across in 900 pages of his book Nothing. Um, about la nada, nothingness. And, and where does that come from? It comes from a, a vision of, of, of God, which is not a Christian vision of God. And that is, and that, is that somehow God is understood as the biggest thing around. You know? um, is God in his room. Well, no, if you think of him as something in this universe, as like the biggest thing around. Why? Because the things in his universe, I mean, I can't be here and where there's glasses at the same time. Either the glass has to move or I have to move. Or Objects are constantly in competition in a certain way with each other. You know? and, and a lot of times I would suggest to you that I think the modern life sees God kind of like that way. Where God is, man, man's freedom can't be at the same time. And this goes back, has a long history, it goes back to a... Okay, I hope I don't lose you all now, but I'm going to try. Um, it, there's a council in, in the early church. It's called Chalcedon in the 4th century. And it was a consideration about who is Christ and who is Jesus Christ. And there was the one party that said, well, he's all God. And, and as he's God, he can't be at the same time man. So kind of his manhood is kind of, it's kind of a, a fake. It's kind of a farce. It's kind of like an appearance. And then there was the other side the historians that said, well, he's all man, really he's man, and he's, he's kind of an interesting man, a superman, very wise man, but at the end of the day, he's a man, and his, the godhead, the divinity is kind of like an afterthought. And then there was a try, an attempt to try to mediate between those two things, those were called the Aryans, and they said, well, he's like 50% man and 50% god, and that was... Um, that was the third option I was tried, and this council says no to the Monophysites, says no to the Nestorians, and says no to the Arians, and says something very peculiar, something strange almost, and says Jesus Christ was hundred percent God and hundred percent man. And following from that was the question about his free will, because are there two wills in Jesus Christ or just one will? Is it just the divine will or the human will? And the thought was, from which the church said no to, that. He can oh, he can't have a human will if he's God because just I mean that the huge will of God would just totally wipe out any human freedom that's left and it's just there's just one will and and the council says no he's he has 100 percent a human will and the human will is not destroyed by the divine will but is actually the condition of possibility that it even exists so the term we try to find for this in theology is called complicated word, the non-competitive transcendence of God, that God is not in competition with human flourishing. Um, this had big, big influences again, that idea that came again and again in history, like, in um, Feuerbach and Marx and all um, other people like him afterwards, they all saw the Christian. They all thought that the Christian view of God was like that—not like the biggest thing around, the biggest being around. Is God again? Is God in this room? Well, according to the Christian view, on the one hand, no, if we consider him as something, but yes, in the sense that he's a condition of possibility that there's anything in this room. So it's not like you can have human freedom and divine freedom at the same time. Totally on the contrary. I can be totally free and it's this divine will and this divine freedom that's sustaining me. Why am I rambling on about this? Because because I think we're very much, we're all children of our age and a lot of times, and I'm speaking now as a Christian, Christian faith has seen freedom, my freedom, if I'm doing my will, well, if I'm doing God's will, then I'm losing my freedom. And that's, totally the contrary of what we Christians would say. It's, it's not that he's, those things are in competition, but, but rather he makes possible my freedom. He makes possible that I, that I am free. And this is again what this quote tries to express. You know that, that it's not, we're not in competition with, the, with each other. Like God is out there and he's in competition with me. It's, it's kind of like the same thing in some of our prayers that we do. plan without having to like good very good question yeah um, this is my attempt I think it has to do with I think this whole idea you can understand it a little bit with comparing it to a love relationship if if you're really 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 strongly in love with someone and you are sure that this person only wants the best for you um, and that you're helping each other to to grow in love then you I mean, as a human, you can never do that totally because there's always, the other person isn't perfect. You can make mistakes. But in a certain degree, you can start saying to yourself, well, I want what the other person wants. And that's not something that, that, that destroys my freedom, but on the contrary, I, I see myself um, liberated through that. And or, mm-hmm. i try another example. Um, I, there's a young couple that I know in Vienna, and I work a lot with young couples, and. And there was a while where they were like super stuck together, like unhealthily stuck together in the sense of you could, there was a certain codependency you know, back and forth. But with time, you saw how they started becoming freer. Like each person was themselves. It wasn't like two circles totally within each other, but there was a, there was a common ground. Um, each person, they, they were becoming more one. And at the same time, they were becoming more each each themselves and i think all of you are in a relationship of love with someone that you cherish if it's a healthy relationship you realize how you become in that relationship you become ever more who you are and at the same time you become more one with the other person does does that make sense i mean you you realize how you become you become closer you know the other person you know what the other person's thinking about and and i think if you if you realize that the other person i mean if there is a real Um, interest in each other that 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 is something um it's not that yes we're gonna have fights and we're gonna have discussions about certain things but imagine if the other partner is really perfect and and that other that other partner only wants the best for you like there's a there's an idea from Edith Stein says in the ultimate the highest union with God the human person not only is Lord over himself but even over God in a certain sense um, or St. Bernard of Clairvaux, speaks of, of the mother of God like this. She's the, like the, the, the praying, um, the omnipotentia supplicante. It's hard to translate. It's like the, the praying almighty lady or something like that. Because it's, it's like God can't refuse or anything. Because there, there's so much one. There's so, such a union um, <coughs> that, that God allows himself to be disposed of by, by these other people. I, I think you see that a little bit in saints. For example... Um, for me, an example of this would be Brother Teresa of Calcutta, where she was able sometimes to do things where you say, like, I, I remember when I was a, a young guy, um, there, was a, there, was a, there was a civil war in Lebanon, and, and um, it was just going back and forth between the Muslims and the Christians, and it was really ugly. And, and she went in there, and there was within, I don't know, within a few hours, she had a, a ceasefire between those two sides. You know, where a lot of other people weren't able to do that within, you know, after weeks and months of trying, um, and, and you realize that, I don't know, there, this person is so connected to, to, to God that, that, I mean, he's, I don't know, it just makes him present. He's just, she's tying into that almightiness that he has and is making, participating, so to speak, in his power um, and is able to transmit that in, in the world. And um, so again, what does this have to do with holy indifference? Why is that not a contradiction? Um, I mean, if, I think if we really believe that God's view of the world is the true view, he has the whole perspective. He has the big picture. Then trusting that he has a picture, the more I'm united with him, the wiser my decisions are going to be. You know, if I am demanding, no, I'm, I'm, I want to do my way, I'm going to do my way, well, a lot of times that's just going to turn into something not very positive. Yeah, uh,
0: I kind of understand but um, <coughs> to what extent can we know God's plan for us, that's something I find quite difficult, how can you know what comes from God and what comes from your own, because I feel when I make a decision um, it's first of all because I feel it's the right decision um, for me um, and then when making the decision I question whether it's God's will that I make this decision, so I I'm not going to be different because all the options which are out there and just wait for God to say like, hey, you have to pick this one. It's first of all, I'm going to think of like, what do I prefer? And then I'm going to listen. Hopefully God will answer me then. Um, uh, like kind of confirmation that I made the, made the right decision. But I feel like God wants us to make free uh, decisions which come from ourselves. And He will intervene and say like, or, or make us feel like whether it's right or not. So I feel like I couldn't make a decision being indifferent and just waiting and listening and because God doesn't speak to us like uh, humans speak to
1: us. Yeah, and I find it, that's why I was kind of hesitant to use the word indifferent because in, in English and also in German, Gleichgültigkeit, even worse. It, it seems like something very, very passive and very indifferent, but the idea is not it's it's not, it's an active indifference. It's an a- active. In, in Germany, you have a beautiful word for disponibility. You know, whatever you want, I'm willing to do it. Um, and it's an active listening, because and then I'm going to second that and say I want that with all my heart. Um, yeah, for I mean I, just thinking my my old, own entrance into the into religious order. I didn't experience that at all as something which was cutting down on my liberty but on totally on the contrary thinking that it was his will and, and something very very liberating. Now how do you how do you find this decision process maybe these are let's let's mention a few practical things at the end now and I think there I mean there's several things there's several also steps I think the first step is um, trying to make some uh, giving some advice and. Um, I think there are certain guardrails or boundaries that are like first which first thing is what what you what Wolfgang mentioned today is, is the Ten Commandments. Um, for, for example, I was in Medjugorje, which is this pilgrimage place in Croatia, and this guy comes up to me and he says he's part of our pilgrimage group. and um, I think that God wants me to marry this woman, and I've never been able to pray with someone so well as with her, and it's just like it's you know it's written in the stars and, and I'm sure like God has told me himself that... The problem was he was married and she was as well, and they both had kids. And and I just looked at him and said, you know, well, um, okay, um, you know, I, I try to quote St. Paul, if an, like sometimes if an angel of light tells you something different than the gospel, then, you know. So I think there's certain <laughs> objective boundaries where you say, well, maybe I have a gut feeling I want to, like give somebody a black eye tonight or I want to drink 25 beers. Well, just because I have that preference doesn't mean it's necessarily good for me. So I think to look at first of all, the first thing when I'm making a decision are, is are there objective, <clears throat> is there objective boundaries in play? And all I'm saying is I think you'll be able to recognize those objective boundaries better if you love God, if you love those principles, if, if you see them as, as, A curtailing of my liberty then I'm not going to listen very well like this guy for example the sixth commandment you shall not you know um, commit adultery or or break your marriage vows he didn't have a love for that commandment and that's that's why he wasn't really seeing it because he didn't want to see it um so that that's my point if I love those things first and trust that what God is telling me is really good for me that's again the whole thing of that was the temptation for Adam and Eve god is is withholding something for you that that's yours you just grab that apple don't trust him he's a tyrant no? and i'm saying no i think if you want to be free that's the wrong way to go about it no so i think first of all you have that then the second thing is you have something <clears throat> which is called the virtues you know, which are good habits and which come through repeated actions and which give you little by little kind of a taste for that which is good um, mm-hmm. If, if you want to see what is the good, the good life, the good way to go, a lot of times people would say, well, look at the saints. Because you know? they show it to you through their lives um, what is good way of living is. And, and the virtues, um, that's a tough one also because building up a virtue needs, first of all, we call that in the Christian um, life asceticism. You have to say no to certain things. For example, if I'm going uh, 200 clicks on the Audubon in the wrong direction, what do I have to do? Well, first of all, I have to recognize, and, and to myself, I'm going in the wrong direction. Not all the other cars are going in the wrong direction. I'm going in the wrong direction. And that's sometimes harder than we might think, right? To, to accept I'm, I'm doing something wrong. I'm here, I need to change something. And, and the second thing I need to do, I need to step on the brakes. And that gives Christianity a lot of times, I think, a very negative view. Oh, you gotta say no to this, and no to this, and no to that. Yeah you have to say no to certain things, but above all, to be able to say yes. We just talked about freedom being a no to very many things, but in order to say yes to many, many things. For example, if I've got a problem with, um, let's say, um, that I, I go to the fridge every time I feel bad, you know? Well, what do I need to do? Well, I need to take certain measures to be able to say no to going to the fridge all the time. Um, empty the fridge, put a, something around it, Like I, I don't know, I get, tell tell somebody, I mean, there's certain means that I start thinking about how can I say no in a better way to this no. I need to say no, I need to get myself um, I need to discipline myself and, and a lot of times it's as the will, it's a problem of the will, so I need to strengthen my will this is one of the ideas, for example, why the church proposes um, to make a little sacrifice for example, on a Friday to eat, I don't know not to eat meat or to Um, once in a while, to do something like fast WhatsApp for two hours or, I mean, to get yourself in control, you know, to have more, what does my yes mean if I can't say no, is an idea from Christopher West. What does yes mean if I can't say no? Nothing, really, if you think about it. Um, And so, to be able to say yes, I need to learn to be able to say no to certain things, right? And that is not yet the virtue. Um, because virtue is, you don't want then to do anything else. It's it makes the practice of the good easy, and it makes it because of making it easier. You're able to see it also quicker. You're able to recognize it quicker. Because I have the tendency to drink my 25th bottle of beer tonight, um, and I always do it. Well, it's it's hard to see even to see the good at that moment um, because I don't want to see it. You know? So the practice of virtue is another way to help us to discern in certain areas of our lives, um, you know, what, what maybe I should be doing. And, and another thing is what I was trying to say before is becoming aware of what are those blind spots? Where are my blind spots? And a lot of times my blind spots can come through pride. It can come through vanity or it can come through sensuality. If I have a, a blind spot because I'm, I'm all about affirmation. Well, if that's what it is and I have the expectation of my parents that I go into medicine because they've gone into medicine and everybody else in our family's gone into medicine, well maybe my decision now to go into medicine is not really that a smart idea. Maybe it is. But maybe it's not a truly free decision because I'm being pushed, so to speak, through this expectation of my family. And and it's not so I need to be aware of these blind spots. You know? I think that's another way to discern. And then um, and this is kind of um, Körning's cluster. like, uh, how would you say that? Um, this is, this is, if, if you can get to this, this is, this is really good. If, if you start being in touch, I mean, it's, it's an idea from, from John Paul II. He says the deepest longings of our heart are are correct, are totally right. The tiefsten Sehnsüchte des Menschen sind genau richtig. Um, the problem is that these deepest longings a lot of times are buried through expectations through egotism, through a lot of other things, so we don't, we're not in touch. For ex- I'll give you an example. There is a, a young lady that came once, to talked to me in, in the John Paul II Center in Vienna, and, and I think she needed about three-quarters of an hour, maybe an hour, to, to make that appointment, you know, to get there. And during the course of the conversation, she's telling me something about her life and saying, well, Father, I don't feel bad when I do that. And, and of course, you can really put your... Man really wirklich ins Fettnäpfchen treten. <laughs> and a lot of times when you're talking about, like somebody opens up like that, you have to be super respectful and you have to, I mean, it's not always that easy, you know, to that that the person doesn't feel offended and so on. But So I try to be really, really careful. But but at the end of the day, I said, look, um, you've, ta- you've taken an hour to drive here to tell me that you don't feel bad when you do that. Why are you telling it to me? <coughs> and, and wouldn't it be wouldn't it be interesting to... To, to to fall like to think about what you really have in your heart and what you really want and and to follow up on that you know? but that takes not an awful lot of honesty with ourselves right because we can again we can fool ourselves because of our tendencies because of our pride because of our vanity because of our sensuality we can have these blind spots but to really come in contact with what's what's deepest in our hearts why because that's God has put it there He's created us you know? and and, and that's, I, I love the freedom with which John Paul, um, for example, would talk about these things. Because, because it's not like, okay, you've got to do this and this and that, no. It's, it's what St. Augustine says, love and do what you want. That's not, um, that quote from him, love and do what you want is not like a blank check to do anything that you want. But it's, it's a call to the greatness of the human, of the depth of the human person. Look really deep into your soul. And see what's really there, you know? and I think that again, um, if you have a big important decision, then things like a weekend like this can help. For example, you know? where you tr- you put your phone, like Father suggested before, into f- into flight mode maybe, and and take some time off, get away <coughs> from the from all the all the noise that's coming in, and all the stuff that's trying to bury maybe our deepest longings, and and, and take some distance, you know? um, get some distance from the from from. Yeah, from things. Um, there's four questions that St. Ignatius suggests that, that you can ask yourself. S- some of them seem a bit macabre, maybe. <laughs> but they're not such bad, bad questions, I think. One of them is, um, what would I suggest to someone who is in my situation whom I don't know? Good question. Um, I-, I remember there is a, a, a guy I knew. He was thinking about, no, that's, that's, it, 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 it'll take too long. Forget it. Um, forget that story. But to ask that question, you know, there's, there's a book from John Maxwell that somebody might know. It's called Great Leaders Ask Great Questions. And I think um, that's the question from Ignatius. That's a really good question. You know? What would I suggest to someone who, whom I don't know who's in my position? And, and to take that into prayer. And, and to t- not just answer quickly, but, but to think about that, reflect about it a little bit, take into prayer, ask God, how do you see that? The second question he asks, and this is the macabre one. <clears throat> what would you do at your deathbed? Sorry, what? And, and, and that's like, if you look back on your life at when you're dying, what would you have liked to have done in this moment? You don't need to ask that with every decision that you make. No, but if it's a really big decision, um, sometimes that can, be, that, can, that can shed a lot of light <coughs> on things. The third question that he asks is, um, what's going to help you more? Now this is more for the Christian, maybe. What's going to help you more um, in view of the glory of God? Like what's going to help you to live? The idea behind this question is a little bit, um, sometimes we do the good in order not to do the better. And we do good things not to do, so we don't have to do what's better. And and so to ask oneself that question, but that yeah, that takes a certain degree of maturity and, and also, an, for the Christian, a certain degree of love of God in order to do that. And then the last question is also maybe more a Christian thing. Um, if you're at the end of your life and you're, let's say, you get up to heaven and you're there with Jesus and, and you're looking back at your life and you know you would have liked to have done, it's similar. it's a similar question, actually. And you would have liked to have done what would have corresponded to the greater love. What would you have liked to have done in that moment? You know, you're looking back and you're saying, I wish I would have done that, which would have corresponded to greater to that which is needed a greater love. What would I have liked to have done that moment? Now he makes that whole consideration with these questions. After he's looked at something else, and that is, and this maybe something more difficult to explain, but he he says, it's first of all try to listen if God is telling you something. So we've looked at objective things like the Ten Commandments. Or, the, like the 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 beatitudes, or you know, certain virtues, etc. Another thing that you can do, he suggests, is is observe your emotions and, and the ideas that come in those emotions. So it's co- what he calls the discernment of spirit. So he says, now the human person is is unity between spirit and body. So sometimes. Um, Obviously, our emotions are dependent on atmospheric pressure, our hormones, a lot of other different things. But, um, again, I'm talking now as a priest. I do believe that God, but also the other spirit, speaks in those moments or uses those things. So if I have negative emotions, um, which are pulling me away, which he calls a desolation. So desolation is... I, I'm kind of sad. I don't see clearly. I, everything's kind of foggy around me. <coughs> I don't see clearly what I should do. I'm kind of, not necessarily despaired, but, but maybe something in that direction. I'm, I'm discouraged. I have less faith, less, less hope, um, less love in me. Um, yeah, it's kind of this downward spiral of my emotions that he says God doesn't speak in those moments. That's not from God. Those things, God is a God of peace and a God of clarity. So in a moment of desolation, he says, don't take an important decision because it's it's always going to be a bad decision. Try to wait. Again, there's moments you've got to make a quick decision. You know, the kid's screaming and he's about to fall out the window and you've got to react, you know. But like we're talking about bigger decisions. If you can wait, wait till you've got... a state of soul of where there's a certain degree of peace, and and the other the other not desolation but consolation, what he calls consolation. So consolation is is peace, is light, a certain spiritual energy, happiness. Um, a- again, also in our relationship to God, it's there's more faith, there's hope, there's love. It, it's an upward movement of the soul, and usually. I mean, with consolation, sometimes you have to look a bit clearer if that's really now from God, because sometimes the evil spirit can close himself as an angel of light, as the example I just gave you before. But um, usually God speaks in peace. But the point is, he doesn't speak in desolation. Never. Those thoughts that come. And so that's one thing that he suggests, is when you have a big decision to make, like, do I marry this person or not? Do I go into the monastery or not? You know, those kind of big life kind of decisions is to take some time, maybe, maybe even some weeks, and to have a prayer time during the day, maybe half an hour, maybe 20 minutes, maybe 15 minutes, somebody's not used to it at all, but it's, it's worthwhile to invest some time. And take a scripture passage, let's say from the New Testament, the Gospel, read some text and take some time, reflect on it, say some time with Jesus there, and at the very end of it, maybe the last three, four, five minutes, to put that decision before God. Now, first of all, you need to have clarity. know, what is, what am I trying to decide on? Now, is it this job or that job? Is it this lady or that lady that I'm gonna marry? Or is it what? What is the decision that I'm taking? And then to put that before God, and then observe what happens. Like, w- where do I notice more peace, and where do I notice more confusion? And, you know, and, and, and do I do I notice a pattern? Like, if I look at this several days during, der- on a row. No, so I, let's say I'm doing this. Every day, and not just at the end of the day to take a time of what he calls conscience exam, where you look back on the day, not just checking off the things that did bad and the things that did good, but you try to observe what kind of states of soul did I have today? Where did I experience desolation? And where did I experience consolation? And what were the thoughts that came to me in those moments? This takes some discipline, but it's really awesome. I mean, like the results of this, I've seen in so many people. It's really, really cool. Because you're... it just helps us to get clarity you know, because a lot of times there's also different ways you can do it. Like for example, you're one day, you, let's say you're, you, you're, you, you, not, you don't pretend, but you kind of as if I've made the decision already. You, know, you put it before God and you say, um, okay, if, if I'm supposed to marry her or marry him, um, then you know, I want to do it with all my heart. I want to give myself to this. You know, and please give me this confirmation that this is what I should be doing. And and see what happens. You know? and then maybe the next day do the opposite and say, well, uh, I'm not going to marry her. You know? and see what and see what happens. Um, and again, this is where <clears throat> it's kind of the same. What John Paul says: the deepest longings of the human heart are exactly right, because it's it's learning to look at ourselves in a deeper way, oh. and and see what's happening inside of me. Um, <coughs> that what is bringing me upward and what is kind of destroying me. And and then try to see if there's a pattern. And and if you can't, if you don't see a pattern, if you've done this for a long period of time, two or three weeks, and there's no thing, well then try to ask yourselves those questions I asked before, those four questions. That can sometimes bring your intellect more into it. But, okay, sorry. I'm I'm seeing you all getting unrest on, uh, on, on your seats and I think we want to have a pause and a break.
2: Um, but, uh, yeah. I just want to say, like one can get very, Focused on wanting to know God's will, like as I mentioned in I tried for three and a half years to know whether God wants me to be a legionary or a diacon priest or something else. And I asked and I asked every day. An hour of prayer in the morning was focused on that, and I had to realize it's not my it's not our responsibility um, to find out what God wants to tell us, to know. No, it's not our responsibility to know God's will. It's our responsibility to want to know it, to hear to be open. But he's the one who decides when he speaks. And like, he's God. So if he wants to give us clarity, he gives it to us. meaning to want it means that we do many of these things and that we seek peace and we seek silence and we seek prayer, but I think we can sometimes get too concerned with the product of knowing God's will and having it, instead of trusting in Him and just receiving it from Him.
1: And at the same time, I mean, not taking that to an extreme, right, and saying, well, yes, I mean, there's a certain amount of there's, what you are saying is there's something I can do, but I can't force him to speak, right? Exactly. But, but, I mean, he who seeks shall find, you know, maybe sooner or later. But to put those means that he does give us in our hands and that those possibilities that we have to try to discern what he's asking us.
2: And he did, at the end, I mean, in my case, he did make it very clear. But what was a lot more important than getting the answer to my question was what he wanted to teach me, which was... Just trust in me and don't worry about producing and getting results and answer, answers to my question. More important it was that I learned to trust in him.
1: OK, I, I think we've, we've really got to stop. So this was the last quote I wanted to, get, to throw on the board for you. Um, I think it's a pretty interesting idea. You know? Man yearns more for love than for freedom. Freedom is the means, love is the goal. <coughs> <laughs> because love always remi- always means the limitation of my freedom for this person. I'm, I'm freely limiting my freedom to, to do something for someone else. Anyway, um, what is my name? Is? Uh, these are some questions you could maybe think about. Um, yeah, maybe you could you could send it again in the WhatsApp group and put it in the WhatsApp group the questions. Yeah. Yeah. And what do we do now? All right. Well, we have we have about half an hour for some discussion or thirty five minutes, and also to have a pause and, and get some coffee and, and whatever. And at five, what about ten after five? Just so we have a few more minutes of of, of time, a little bit of bigger pause. No, it's not overkill. We meet. Where, where do we meet in the chapel?
2: Yeah.
1: yeah? And and myself and Father Grotzer will be up here in the rooms.
2: From, uh, so the five five past ten we meet in the chapel. We start ten, ten past five. Ten, <laughs> ten. <laughs> uh, ten past five we meet in the chapel. Um, we're gonna expose the blessed sacrament, have a moment of prayer together and then we start um, two hours of personal time so <laughs> where everyone can have some time for prayer with we're gonna have rosaries there on the table. Um, you can have the blessed sacrament exposed. You can go for a walk to process all of that and to to spend some time with God. So that will be our slot of of silence and where we don't talk too much with each other, so that we're open to.